When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I've got a special announcement for Team Human supporters. We're doing a Team Human salon on May 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with our friend Tyson Yunkaporta in our Team Human Spatial Audio Lounge. It's just one of the benefits of being a Team Human subscriber, along with access to our bonus content like conversations with Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, Nina Graboy, Paul Krasner, Harvey Picard, Joanna Harcourt-Smith. I think this last week was Dana Boyd. You get access to our Discord channel and invitations to live events, plus the joy of joining Team Human subscribers like Marek M., Ivan Durgatowski, Burke O. Ozturk, Matt Alexander, and Rebecca by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, where we model new ideas and behaviors for one another, not to transcend the human condition, but to celebrate it. This is not a competition, but a party. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, a teacher of principled entrepreneurship at the Catholic University of America and the author of Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life, Luke Burgess. Everybody kind of starts resembling everybody else. And there's what Gerard would call a crisis of sameness. Right? Everybody is struggling to differentiate themselves and they don't really understand why they're in the crisis that they're in. Luke will be sharing the reasons behind Silicon Valley's obsession with the philosophies of former Stanford professor René Girard, and the question of whether we can ever transcend the human impulse to want to be like someone else. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I know the uh, George Floyd trial happened 
gosh, a week ago. But it it's stayed with me emotionally. I mean, at first, it was the uh, the crime itself and seeing that video of this guy being pinned down and tortured and this strange image of this guy with his knee on this person's neck and so proud and defiant and just the sickness of it and the, the crowd, the small crowd, begging him to stop. And then at the trial, I got I got really upset with the way the defense started to gaslight the witnesses that there were these people who were there who couldn't do anything because the cops all had guns and they're begging. And then the defense says, oh, well, do you ever think that you might be the reason why George Floyd died? Because you were scaring the cops. And these are people who already feel so guilty that older man who who was calling out to George saying, just give up. You lost this one. Just give up. And the way he was crying at being unable to impart his wisdom of experience to this young man and to, to watch the young man die instead. You know, these, these traumatized people to be attacked like that, to take their subconscious doubt about did they do enough and turn that on them to the point where you're saying, oh, no, you're actually the reason why this guy died. I mean, that was just uh, that was just pure cruelty. Uh, and it, it I don't know, it reminded me of something of, of, you know, being young and being in these situations where, you know, you get blamed for something or where you, you're made to feel responsible for something that's outside of your control. It's really it was existentially cruel to these people. And then, you know, finally, on the on the last day, when the judge read the verdict, I found that kind of traumatizing too, you know? And I look at Derek Chauvin, I get it. This guy's a, a sadist. He's sick. He killed. He murdered. But as I watched him there with his mask on as the judge almost all too casually read this verdict, uh, second degree murder, you know, like he's, you know, reading the inventory of a, uh, you know, at a <laughs> video store or something. It was just like this super casual uh, reading of, of the thing. And I saw Derek Chauvin's eyes darting around. I flashed back to this this moment when I lived in the East Village and these mice had infested my apartment and I went to the hardware store and bought this supposedly humane mousetrap and heard it go off at night and went and looked and saw this mouse just... It wasn't humane. Leave it like he was stuck in a terrible way, but he was alive. And I saw his eyes darting around like, what? What did I do? And I saw that for a moment in Chauvin, this confusion and panic. And then when they said it's guilty and all this, almost this relief that he put his hands behind his back so quickly as if to say, just, just take, just do it. Just put it on the cusp. Take me away. This is it. This, this 
confused sadist, not knowing what had happened. And it's not like I had sympathy for him or even, you know, I guess some human-to-human empathy at seeing this other human being. And then listening to the the debate about, well, is this a question of it being a one bad apple and the police, oh no, you're not allowed to say that because if he's a bad apple, then it negates the systemic racism. But if you blame it all on systemic racism, then it relieves him of personal responsibility for what happened. So in the end, it's really, it's both. He's this sick sadist guy who ended up in a systemically racist police force that allowed this sadism to blossom instead of correcting it. And the sick part of it is that if you take a 19 or 20-year-old guy with borderline sadism, guy who loves uh, uh, you know, chasing people and shooting guns and stuff, and he becomes part of the police force... They had 20 years to work on this guy. They had 20 years to take this cantankerous, young, whatever he was at 19 or 20, and correct him when he uses the N-word in the squad car. His superior officer should say, no, Derek, we don't do that. When he tries to get too rough with someone, the superior should say, no, that's not how we are right now. You've got you've to take two weeks and get remedial training. You could easily take guys who have problems and rather than reinforcing their sadism, rather than reinforcing their violence, you train it out of them over 20 years. But obviously this guy was not corrected. There was a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Oh yeah, let's send Derek in that fostered this way, this way of thinking. That's the systemic problem. You know, you don't have to take every 20 year old who comes in there with a, a lust for violence and reinforce those qualities in him. So they were they were reinforced. And, and I couldn't help but see the 20-year-old who was steered wrong. And I even thought of this interview I saw when I was in college that a talk show host named Tom Snyder, he did this interview with Charlie Manson. And everyone agrees, Charlie Manson's bad. He sent these people to you know kill Sharon Tate. It was horrible, horrible stuff. And they interviewed Charlie Manson, and he kept saying to him, uh, to Manson, he said, kept asking, he said, yes, but were you responsible for these deaths? Were you responsible? And Manson kept saying, whoa, who's responsible for me? I was in reform schools and jails all but nine years of my life. He's 47. It's like, you know, 38, 39 years of my life was spent in institutions being raised by really horrible people. This is, and my father beat me and all this stuff. I mean, yeah, he's responsible, but... We're all responsible in some ways for the the environment that created a Charlie Manson, that, that he's a reflection of our society as much as a bad apple. And I look at the folks that are angry at cops, people like us. We want to you know defund the police or at least refund social workers and other things and take some money away from bazookas and violence, you know, the stuff that we were talking about during the BLM protests. You know, defunding the cops is not really what solves this problem in terms of police violence. No, actually, maybe paying cops better so you're not just getting crazy people coming in there. So there's some incentive other than I get to shoot guns and I get to chase people. Um, there's some incentive to be a cop. So you end up with people lining up to do this thing because they're getting $100,000, $150,000 to become civil servants, to become people who police us. 
who have the honor and the privilege of policing us. But it's also the folks that are supposedly supporting the cops that are creating this problem for cops. When you wave a flag, a supposedly, what is the, these uh, Blue Lives Matter flags, you wave a Blue Lives Matter flag in front of a cop. What is that a picture of? That's a picture of a thin blue line. It's a black and white American flag with the police represented as a thin blue line. Well, you understand what that metaphor is, right? It's the thin blue line protecting the whites from the blacks. I'm not making this up. That's what that is. That's what the thin blue line is, protecting the rich from the poor, the whites from the blacks, the the good from the bad. It's this presumption that our society is in a perpetual civil war between one class and another, one race and another, and that these people are hired to protect one side from the other. Well, what's that going to do? What's that going to do? That is a very, that's the wrong premise for a police force. That's not about protecting us. That's not about helping society move forward in a less violent way. No, policing ourselves is a profound responsibility. The person who's going to be willing to run into an apartment where someone is screaming for help and not knowing what you're going to find, you know, there's only two kinds of people who are going to do that. You know, people who are crazy enough to do that because it's fun and people who are incentivized by something other than the possibility of getting to shoot someone. And Beyond that, there are so many non-lethal ways of engaging with even scary, dangerous people. You know, that's not rocket science. Just because someone has a gun doesn't mean you have to shoot them. There's other things you can do to disarm somebody with a gun that doesn't have to kill them. You can incapacitate them. You can shoot other things at them. You know, there's non-lethal ways of stopping people. That's not, that's not the real problem here. You know, the real problem here is that we are exploiting peacekeepers as a way of insulating white from black, rich from poor, and that is untenable. That makes the problem worse, not better. That's institutionalizing the creation of two teams when there's really only one. I'm delighted to bring you someone I've been meaning to speak with as I work on my own new book, Luke Burgess. He's both an entrepreneur and a Catholic scholar who's been pretty heavily invested in studying the work of Rene Girard. He's this Stanford philosopher, now now past, but he became something of a hero to some of the tech bros. Luke is a special guy, though, who appreciates Girard for way more than his utility value in building social media empires. He's a Catholic in the very best sense of the word. And I think our conversation may actually reveal, kind of between the lines, a little something about the the positive side of salvation. I can't quite bring myself there, you know, as a, as a process-oriented, very presentist Jew, but I can appreciate the sort of transcendence that Luke is talking about. Also, just for clarity, mimetic and mimetic are two different things. So when we're talking about mimesis here, we're not talking about memes and media viruses and all that stuff I usually talk about. We're talking about mimesis as imitation, that this, this natural human urge to copy and mirror what other people do. So 
Here's my conversation with Luke Burgess. Welcome to Team Human. You've been a great asset to me. I don't usually have authors on. Well, everybody's an author, but I try not to have authors on when they've just written a book because it gets too much like Terry Gross or one of those shows where they're speaking more about something than with each other. (laughs) But your book... Wanting the Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. It relates to some explorations I've been doing into the Silicon Valley mindset. I mean, the book is ostensibly about the theories of a philosopher who taught at Stanford, Rene Girard, who became quite a hero and role model for a bunch of the tech bros, including none other than Palantir billionaire Peter Thiel. Only really... You use Gerard more as a launching pad for a whole lot of ideas about mimesis and life and how much energy we put into desiring what others have and how we might even be able to transcend all this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, the book is about wanting. It is about desire. And there's nothing, in my opinion, more human than this phenomenon of desire. We desire differently than animals do, who are kind of limited to biological instincts. So desire is closely tied in just with the very idea of transcendence in general. All desire is in some sense a desire for transcendence, according to Rene Girard. So I think there's some fascinating implications there for human behavior, uh, for economics, um, because often we have deviated transcendence. We seek false transcendence in all the wrong places. And I, I think that's the root of a lot of our problems. Yeah, well, there's certainly uh, songs about looking for love in all the wrong places and a whole lot of movies. You know, one of uh, Robert McKee, the guy who wrote Story and teaches those uh, screenplay classes, one of his main movie structures is the idea that the protagonist is either going for the wrong thing or going for the right thing, but in the wrong way. And that's sort of interesting. I think most of us are doing one or the other. And I want to break these down. I mean, obviously, uh, Rene Girard got popular again as a big Stanford professor and all the uh, famous Silicon Valley developers ended up taking his classes and they were profoundly influenced by his main really easy idea, which is really just that we don't want things so much as the things other people have. And it makes me think about the Bible in in another way, because it doesn't say don't want somebody. It says don't covet something, right? Don't covet your neighbor's wife. And the idea seems to be not that you can't want that woman, but that the coveting is the problem. It's that it's your neighbor's wife that you want. So it doesn't mean you can't have sex with her or do anything you want. It's you can't want her because she's your neighbor's wife. You can't want this thing that someone else wants. And, you know, you can't want to wear that hat even because the cool guys are wearing that hat. It's the cool guy wearing the hat that then gets us all confused. Yeah, I mean, the 10th commandment is fascinating because it doesn't seem like any of the other commandments. It's like this all-encompassing, sweeping commandment. Like, <laughs> And actually, the closest translation to that Hebrew word in English is like desire. Yeah. So we normally hear covet. It's actually kind of like don't desire anything of your neighbors. Uh, so it's this very sweeping commandment. And my interpretation of it, it's not, you know, don't 
desire, anything that other people desire, because Girard would say, well, that's impossible. That's actually the way that desire works. Desire is by its very nature, it's mimetic. It's getting at this destructive, rivalrous desire. And the key implication of mimetic theory is that there's this principle of conflict at the very heart of human behavior because desire is mimetic. And if we don't realize that often the only reason that we want something is because somebody else has it, it draws us quite naturally into a envious rivalry with that person. Usually we don't even realize that it's happening. It's funny. I mean, we see it in children. I mean, if you let a bunch of three to four-year-olds loose in a room that's got hundreds of toys in it, you could have a kid who has zero interest in one particular toy. But the second some other cool, you know, little three-year-old goes and picks up the shiny red fire truck, all of a sudden, it's the only toy in the room that he wants. And you give them a few minutes and they're fighting over the same toy. And there's a hundred toys all around them. So that kind of behavior is sort of very common. I'm sure, you know, as, as we were settling the West, you know, you'd have two guys go out state of Nevada. It's like a desert at that time. And, you know, they converge on one tiny plot of land just because the other guy wanted to set up shop there. So this is very common. We see it in children. We see it in adults. Right. Well, it's, got to be an evolutionary thing on some level too so when when we're you know little baby people the way we know how to crack open a coconut is because we see someone else cracking open a coconut and then we imitate them that's our our basic survival especially if we don't have that many instincts yeah so i mean uh, mimesis is which is a way of saying imitation is a, a tremendously positive thing. Uh, it's how we learn languages. It's how we learn cultural norms. Uh, it's how we learn all kinds of things, probably even how to love and care for other people. Yes, it's it's how we establish rapport. You might be sitting across from me and you have your, your head leaning on your fist and then I kind of lean my head on my fist and it's an unconscious mirroring, not me trying to be like you, but I'm doing it because I'm, I'm simpatico. You know, we could manipulate Manipulated in some neurolinguistic programming way, but we do it quite naturally. That's what a handshake is, too. I mean, and think about how uncomfortable it makes us if that little ritual of imitation goes slightly wrong. <laughs> it makes us highly uncomfortable. Like I go to shake your hand and you don't you, you don't return, you don't extend your hand to shake mine. Right. Or you're like looking over my shoulder, you don't seem interested. I'm like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? Does he think he's too good for me? And it kind of throws me into a crisis mode immediately because that ritual of imitation is so embedded in our social relations. Oh, and it's also the most natural thing in the world, even with with babies. Before a, a baby can even talk, you can kind of look at it and you open your mouth and then the baby opens its mouth or you wave your hand and the baby waves its hands. And that's kind of the way you communicate or, or participate in society is is whether you you imitate or not. If, if there's no language, how does the other person even know that you're there, that you're responding, unless you do something with them or, yeah. or in reflection to them? So like many things in life and in the world, there's a dark side, right? It's, it's both good and bad. I, I'm sort of a person that's ambivalent in many ways. Uh, René Girard was kind of like that, right? He sort of would would see that, you know, almost nothing is like all good or all bad. It's nuanced. And what starts out is this healthy, open form of imitation in children. Like children aren't embarrassed to imitate anybody. 
They they imitate their mother and father openly, their their older brother. But it's funny what happens. Like as we grow up, we become teenagers and imitation is like the worst thing imaginable. Everybody wants to be unique. Uh, everybody wants to innovate and imitation is like a dirty word. So as we grow older, the funny thing about it is that it kind of gr- goes underground and becomes this hidden secret form of imitation that we're embarrassed about. Yet we all do it all the time. Yeah. Well, it's it's a conundrum, right? You think, oh, he's really unique. Well, I'd like to be really unique too. So you kind of can't get out of it, right? We're each imitating each other's desire to be different. So then just being different becomes a form of, of conformity. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the, the hipster phenomenon, right? Like, I'm going to reject popular culture and not be like any of this stuff. Um, and then they all sort of start looking and sounding alike, right? Right. Um, it's that kind, of, that kind of strange phenomenon. Like, sometimes the more we try to reject others and be unique or individualistic, the less we realize that we're just falling into other forms of mimesis. Yeah, but the bad part of all this, at least when you read Gerard about this and everybody's all copying each other and all, they get into this this sort of frenzy of everybody copying and competing with one another until it turns into this this Shirley Jackson story, like the lottery. And then they just pick one person and scapegoat them and kill them or just kick them out, you know? And and how does that all happen when when everybody's imitating each other? Why don't they just keep imitating each other? How does it get to this place where all the imitators then need to pick one scapegoat, you know, and whatever it is, a Jew, a black, a woman, whoever is different or the wealthy person even, scapegoat them and then and then attack them? Yeah, so you're moving ahead to the the kind of culmination of Gerard's theory. And some people find this a big leap. And I'm going to try to explain it very briefly. So imitation is very contagious. Uh, And in sort of a closed system or a closed community, when people begin imitating one another, especially when they don't realize that they're doing it, the imitation spreads pretty quickly. I mean, think about an argument that breaks out in a room. We think about this in politics, how quickly people take sides. It's almost impossible to stay neutral when two people are in kind of this imitating aggression and imitating violence, right? Like fights in baseball typically clear the benches. It's hard to like stay outside of that what I would say, mimetic violence. So the mimesis spreads very, very quickly throughout any community where it's in which it started. And then when that happens, it's kind of a war of all against all. Everybody's imitating everybody else. They're in this kind of closed loop system. If you think about it, we become more like the people that we're imitating. So we become, you know, naturally, if I'm, if I'm imitating um, Douglas Rushkoff enough, if I keep doing it my whole life, I'll begin to become, take on some of your traits and become more similar to you. So when, this, when everybody's imitating everybody else, they become more of the same. It's kind of like two idiots arguing. They actually just both become bigger idiots. Everybody kind of starts resembling everybody else. And there's what Gerard would call a crisis of sameness. Right? Everybody is struggling to differentiate themselves, and they don't really understand why they're in the crisis that they're in. So somebody emerges in situations like this, in Gerard's opinion, throughout history, this has always happened. Somebody emerges who is singled out as being a little bit different, 
whether that's um, due to their sexuality, their gender, um, their their beliefs, wh whatever it is. They're singled out as, as being uh, different and typically blamed for the cause of the mimetic crisis that they find themselves in. And what this person who's a little bit different does is um, if everybody's the same, how do you kind of extract yourself from that situation? How do you pick a scapegoat? So a scapegoats traditionally have been somebody who deviates just a little bit from this from the sameness of everybody else, right? Just a, just a little bit. And that that difference is amplified in their minds, right? Well, the different one is serving almost like a spoil sport to the game. It's interesting. You know, when you see someone cheating in a game, I mean, you might, they might correct him, but at least the person cheating in the game, like Heusinger would say, the great uh, Dutch philosopher, the, the cheater is still amplifying, he's underscoring the importance of the game. It's important enough that he'll cheat. But the, the spoil sport, the one who doesn't even acknowledge the stakes of the game, that's the real enemy. So if you've got you know, a trading floor of stock traders and hedge fund guys, and they all get their special cards done like an American psycho, have their special haircuts, and they're all competing to get their investments and their haircuts and their shoes and their restaurant reservations. And there's one guy who just has slightly different values. It's asking, why do we want to take everybody's money? And how much profit is enough to be okay with this? And they undermine the anxiety and the tension and the competition that everybody else has. You know, so, so for a moment, instead of worrying about all their competition with each other, they can all look over that guy with the different haircut or the guy who's, who's saying that we don't need to make this much money. And then they're going to, you know, play a practical joke on that guy or, or kick him out or something. You know, it doesn't solve their problem, but it, but it distracts them for a moment. That's exactly what it does. It, I mean, he stands out just enough. It's like a lightning rod, like through this gravitational pull that takes all of their tension and anxiety that they're feeling, and it just gives them a place to direct it towards. And what that actually does is it unites all of them. It unites all of them towards that one person, right? Prevents them from having to actually deal with themselves and actually think about what they're doing and their own internal issues. And it just channels all of that onto the one person. So let's, if we're talking about a hedge fund here, you know, they, they fire him, they blame him for disrupting the company culture or whatever it is, uh, and they get rid of him. And that, that is a form of the scapegoat mechanism. It, it leads them to believe for a little while that they've done something good, that they've rid themselves of their problems, right? Sports teams do this all the time. They have a bad year. They fire the coach. They get rid of a player. Uh, and chances are their problems run a little bit deeper than that one person, right? Yeah, and I've seen it happen in companies, too. They'll get rid of a developer or somebody, and they'll say, oh, uh, at Human Resources, they'll write a note and say, well, he wasn't really uh, uh, mixing well with the company culture. And that just really means he didn't play into the mimetic game. But in reality, if you're a good company, you want people who are not playing into the mimetic game. That way you get actual innovation that's coming from outside the groupthink. But, you know, they ended up, they'll always just blame it on, on company culture that he just didn't fit in. Yeah. He, wasn't, he wasn't one of us. 
Yeah, and, and this is why there's so such tremendous pressure for conformity. Because people intuitively, even if they've never heard of René Girard and they, they don't really, they couldn't explain the historical workings of the scapegoat mechanism, everybody kind of knows that it's not good to be that guy that, you know, that's not playing the game. Everybody knows that. And that's why when we see, when we see the crises, um, some of the things that have just happened over the last year, a lot of people are, were, you know, were scared to say anything because everybody kind of knows you don't want to be the one person who stands out when everybody else is 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 doing is moving in one direction. Yeah, it's it's sad and and funny. You know, I had a, a student, uh, actually a listener who who wrote a paper called uh like Shaman Trickster Spoil Sport. And he was arguing that that the spoil sport is actually a form of uh, of shaman of, of shaman that that he's the trickster he's the the he or she is the the artist who helps us see ourselves you know just uh, take a, a pop example even like like Lady Gaga saying uh, I'm born this way I'm the weirdo and you need me here to move culture forward yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that those are, they have been people throughout history that have moved us forward because the scapegoat, ironically, is the way that a community in crisis achieves a form of transcendence. It allows them to transcend their mimetic violence by channeling it outside of themselves onto the scapegoat. And they traditionally expel the scapegoat or fire the scapegoat or, you know, in Greek society, they killed the that. That's that's fa- that's bad transcendence, right? Well, that's bad, but there are ways to do the scapegoat thing that aren't so terrible, like like a roast. You know, we'll we'll let this guy into the friars club, but he'll have to endure one night where we all tease him as an outsider, like like a hazing that affirms the mimetic value of the fraternity. Or or at Harvard, there was some club of elite guys who used to have to go to a kick line and drag as some sort of scapegoat ritual, and people would throw stuff and tease them. And it would somehow bond the community's values. You know, it's it's slightly violent, but it's definitely better than doing, you know, pogroms against the Jews or, or lynching of blacks. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's become ritualistic. And obviously, this is terrible. And, you know, Gerard says this is the violent history of of human beings. They've traditionally tried to solve their problems with scapegoats. And it used to be quite literally a human sacrifice, um, the slaughter of uh, animals, right? There's There's a ritual of scapegoating in the book of Leviticus. And then over time, we substituted other things for humans and for animals. And it became it became a ritual. Sure, but a celebrity roast or a, a White House press corps dinner, I mean, the president just sits there while a comedian and other politicians make fun of him, and then he gets up and does the same thing to the press. It's it's a healthy ritual, no? The fact that Donald Trump couldn't do it shows kind of how dire and literal things had become, or that, that his, his, you know, mental proclivities you know, wouldn't allow it. But the purpose, as I understand it, is that the, the president is at the very top of the mimetic pyramid, and he humanizes himself by letting people take him down a few notches, you know, kind of establish an equilibrium. Gerard, he wouldn't say this is sick, would he? Isn't it a healthy way of satisfying the scapegoat urge? 
Yeah, because it does provide some form of catharsis and a healthy outlet for these things. I mean, comedy is a great one. So absolutely. So we have to be very careful about just doing away with rituals in our society and in our culture. We have to be very careful about that because there's a good chance, uh, you know, that some of them are Lindy for a reason. They've been around <laughs> for a long time because they, they actually serve a cultural function. We have to be very careful about just not respecting the past. Um, and some of those rituals, um, you know, we, we think that it's silly and maybe not that important, but it might be more important than we realize. There might be some deep human stuff going on and things like that. Well, and hopefully it keeps us from doing other stuff that we shouldn't. You know, scapegoating like putting children in cages or using refugee camps to protect ourselves from people we see as aliens. You know, so I, I think we have the gist of, of Gerard here, that people imitate each other until it gets so competitive that they take out their anxiety on whoever isn't quite playing the game. Then they scapegoat that person, and then they start over again. But Gerard got really popular really only recently as his former students at Stanford, people like Peter Thiel and, and the, the Google guys, then they started crediting him with their philosophical outlooks on technology and business, right? Peter Thiel took one look at Facebook and he said, ah, that's Gerard 2.0, right? He saw the realization of Gerard's theories and he becomes the biggest Facebook investor, not because he thought it would let people transcend all this competition, but he thought Facebook would become the ultimate mimesis platform. Yeah, he did see Facebook as, you know, in his words, it was doubly mimetic because, you know, Facebook was part of it was talking about Facebook and all your friends who are on Facebook. So the big question right now is, you know, technology. Can technology be an instrument to channel mimesis in a positive way? That's, that's a huge question. And I think Peter would say that Facebook act, actually is diffusing mimetic rivalry and mimetic desire. But we all know that Facebook has made a lot of scapegoats and has caused a lot of mimetic rivalry and problems of its own. So I think he would probably say that it's a two-edged sword. That's a separate question, right? This is a social and a cultural question from the investment, the lucrative investment opportunity that he saw in Facebook. And he saw that it would be a highly, highly mimetic technology and instrument. And you know what? That's really good for Facebook and that's really good for Facebook's investors. Sure. Whether or not it's ultimately good for society, it's certainly feeding and allowing the expression of a deep-seated hunger or need to do all of this imitation. Right. I mean, because if you're on a Facebook group, QAnon, whatever it is, and, and you know, you're in there back and forth arguing, as long as you're doing it on Facebook's platform, that's a good thing for Facebook. Well, what I wonder about, though, is is Facebook just an example of Mark Zuckerberg letting people do all this mimesis, or is it an example of him transcending mimesis and letting everybody else copy each other? Is he moving above the fray by doing this? I'm going to build a forum that lets people copy each other, and that's that's the concept. I mean, 
when you read Girard, he talks a lot about transcendence. You know, he's talking about how do you transcend the mimesis that everybody's doing so you don't have to get involved in all the scapegoating and everything else, and you can somehow rise above it, right? Is that what... Is that what a, a Facebook does? You know, because I, I read Peter Thiel and he always talks about, you know, getting from zero to one, you know, becoming a, a, a one means being one of these people who's transcended the thing. Is, is, <laughs> right. is becoming the, the orchestrator of a platform, is that going meta on Mimesis? Yeah, I, I mean, I... I don't think that Mark Zuckerberg has transcended uh, any of these mimetic phenomena. You know, I, I don't believe in this kind of Ayn Randian uh, sort of transcendent entrepreneur in that sense of it at all. I mean, I think that's a very sort of toxic way to think about entrepreneurship. Uh, so I don't. I mean, obviously, we know, you know, there, there were, there was MySpace. There were multiple social networks before Mark Zuckerberg. And if you, you know, you know the origin story of, of the Facebook, I mean, there was all kinds of rivalry and violence at the origin of that. So um, I, I don't view him that way at all. You know, we kind of have winner-take-all markets right now, and I think, uh, not denying that he's he's a smart guy or anything like that, but I, I think there's a lot of complex factors there, not due to Mark Zuckerberg as this transcendent entrepreneur who created this, you know, this mechanism to, you know, to subvert the system or anything like that. I don't think that's the case. Well, not Zuckerberg, but but maybe Teal does. You know, Teal wrote this book, Zero to One. And what he's saying is if you're going to start a business, a big business, you really have to be a whole order of magnitude above your competitors. You have to be literally 10 times different. That's what he's saying. 10 times better, an order of magnitude better. And it was interesting to me because an order of magnitude is kind of like a transcendence. You know, 10 times more is another level as if he's moving one level up. And I was wondering if if you think maybe that's an interpretation of Girard, that he's trying to apply Girard's notion of transcendence directly to business as this kind of entrepreneurial entrepreneurial ability to rise above your competition. Yeah, that's an interesting take on it. So he does seem to be saying that in zero to one. And I do believe it's possible to develop some anti-mimetic kind of muscles, for lack of a better phrase, right? That, that it is possible to be less mimetic than other people. Sure. But if you read between the lines in that book, Teal also seems to say that there's a mythology created around company founders and that uh, they're not as different as they want us to believe they are. There's a whole fascinating chapter in that book about kind of founding mythologies and that they want us to think that about them. Like Mark Zuckerberg wants us to think that he kind of exists in, you know, in this different existential fear than, than everybody else. Uh, but, you know, we know that that's not true. He's part of Team Human, too, actually. Right. You know? Um, and so Teal s- seems to be saying both things at the same time and that people play these mimetic games. They, we play games and that entrepreneurs would like to think that they're kind of 10xing everything and doing all this innovation. But they're mimetic, too probably more than they realize, and that there's a narrative around founders, I mean, even that very word is kind of funny, that uh, sort of exacerbates some of this um, kind of Ayn Randian and mythological type stuff. 
Yeah, that's interesting to me. I I remember talking to Howard Bloom, who was a publicist to many rock stars in the 60s and 70s. And he once said that the whole trick, the whole mythology around a rock star is that they have no parents. Mm. Never show their parents. Because you don't want a kid to imagine the rock star is just another suburban kid with parents and all that. (laughs) They have to have somehow kind of spontaneously (laughs) spawned as as an 18-year-old, complete. You know, like Jim Morris. Who are his parents? He doesn't have parents. You're not supposed exactly. to think about that. He just appeared magically, exactly. like like the man who fell to earth. Yeah, I mean, if you get under the surface of, of company founding stories, there's always more than meets the eye. There's always more than meets the eye. Right. It's as if they believe that if they're imitating somebody else in any way, then they're not truly, truly original and thus what they're doing, you know, is worthless. Now that's one of the one of the big ideas I've been working against mm-hmm. with Team Human, especially since I read uh, Myth of Eternal Return, you know, the more indigenous idea that human beings don't actually do anything original. Everything we do is an imitation of something that went before, either by a human or by the gods or by nature, and that that's really okay. We're just imitating and reenacting. It's okay that there's nothing new under the sun, that connecting to our legacies, to what went before, is is a good thing, a strengthening thing, a connecting thing. It's actually a relief that you're getting to experience something, then that you have to, then you have to claim it as your own. Yeah, I mean, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun uh, that comes from a pretty good source. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that concept of the eternal return is is an interesting one. And, uh, you know, in contrast to more of a teleological perspective. And, uh, and this is kind of what the unbearable lightness of being is all about. If anybody's read Milan Kundera, that book is really struggling with that concept. And, uh, I mean, it, it does seem like there's a cult of innovation right now. Uh, you know, the French Revolution changed a lot of that. A lot of people, I don't think, realize that before the French Revolution, imitation was prized. It was like the best thing that you could do was imitate the masters, imitate the saints, whatever. And innovation was considered uh, arrogant, just a very bad thing, right? Like Hobbes wrote something like, those who endeavor are so arrogant to think that they can innovate and that they know better than everybody that came before us. And uh, those two words have been totally reversed. I mean, if you think about it now, innovation is kind of the God that we worship and imitation, ha- nobody wants to be known as an imitator. I find that kind of reversal very telling about things that have been happening in our culture. Not to be facile, but I feel like we can blame this on capitalism too, because capitalism is based mostly on these pyramid schemes in biblically too. You know, so you need an idea that's the foundation of the thing. Then you get in early on the new idea. So we're in at the ground mm. level of this thing. Yeah, you know, it's I think that we're seeing more of that today than than we ever have. I mean, there's been plenty of instances with capitalism where, you know, you don't necessarily have to be doing a new thing. You just have to be doing a better thing. Like you make a better pizza than the pizza shop down the street and you're going to get more business. But today I am noticing that that seems to be the the trend uh, where sort of everybody's an entrepreneur and you know, everybody is has an LLC after their name or something like that, and everybody's got to be doing something totally different than everybody else. I'm not quite sure where that ends, to quite frankly. 
I think we're going to have, have we have a lot to work out with that. Well, it's got to end in disillusionment. You know, it has to end with people realizing, oh, I, I'm actually never going to do anything truly, truly new. There is no such thing as new. Well, I have to say, I mean, I, I believe in, in value creation, that, that it's possible, right? It's possible to create uh, value. Um, and so in that sense, you know, we, we can create new things. I mean, if it's just a zero-sum game, yeah. Well, yeah, there's there's new stuff. Like the, the kids at Apple that were getting upset that their uh, pizza was being delivered soggy from the dining room there they invented a new pizza box to get pizzas from the cafeteria to their offices that actually keeps the pizza crisp somehow and it's new right so that's that's a, a good thing and hopefully Domino's or somebody will license it so there's there's new there there's innovation but it's a little bit different than saying i am the original i am the alpha right <laughs> like, i am the alpha you are the omega and i am the thing everyone wants you know but going back to Gerard and 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 society, it where, where it starts getting confusing for me again is it feels as if Gerard is also saying that you know we have these scapegoat moments and they keep coming and keep coming, but then Christ was some sort of a bigger scapegoat moment than the others, kind of the the ultimate scapegoat. Yeah, he says that Christ basically subverted the scapegoat mechanism. For, for the very first time, the scapegoat had always been believed through a mimetic process, right? Accusations of guilt are also mimetic. They literally change our perception of, of a person. And that scapegoats throughout history had always been presumed to be guilty. And that Christ was different than all of the myth other mythologies that had come before, uh, including in other cultures, because he was known very quickly after the crucifixion to have been innocent. People started to proclaim his innocence. And that's what he said was different, and that sort of revealed the folly of the scapegoat mechanism. In other words, the scapegoat mechanism had been used to, um, we kind of covered it up. That's, that's a good way to say it. We had covered up the scapegoat mechanism with all kinds of mythologies and that the crucifixion sort of you know pulled back, broke the fourth wall on that mechanism bringing people into some kind of uh, consciousness about it so they could see and say oh wow they're really scapegoating this guy this is something that we do right i mean so you, you look at um you know oedipus rex you know this plague befalls the city of thebes and uh you know he he eventually is sort of uh scapegoated. Gerard actually looks at that story and, you know, as, as you know, Oedipus was the cause of the plague. Well, that's funny. I mean, this guy, you know, because he uh, married his mother, killed his father, brought on a biological plague, something seems a little bit off with that. Uh, and Gerard says, no, I mean, what really happened is that there was probably a mimetic crisis in that community. He was scapegoated uh, in some way. And this, the, this is the mythology that grew up around that, right? So the mythology is that, yeah, this person brought on this disease or this problem in our, in our community. And if you get under the don't, in other words, don't believe mythologies. At the core of every mythology is a real victim, is somebody, is real violence that was done, and it's covered up with stories that make them always seem as if they were guilty. 
And Christ was different in that the story is not that here's this, you know, itinerant um, Jewish rabbi who, you know, was a heretic and was subverting the empire. And, you know, we got him and we, we held him accountable and brought him to justice. That normally would have been the story, but that wasn't really the story. I mean, it took a little bit of time. But uh, he's, you know, the the story was no, no, no. He was innocent, and we all kind of know that. What do you mean that if we know that Christ was innocent of all the stuff that the the Romans or the Pharisees or whoever it was accused him of, then on some level it means that all the scapegoats we've been using throughout history that all of them are innocent. That yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and so, you know, Gerard th- thinks that this, the veil has been pulled back on the scapegoat mechanism. So in other words, we don't believe in the scapegoat mechanism the way that our ancestors did thousands of years ago. We don't believe in it anymore. And, you know, our society defends victims really unlike, unlike any other. We also make victims, right? But we we have like a, a real heightened sensitivity to any anybody who's innocent who is being victimized. That's not to say that we're perfect, but uh, it something has changed to where you know we don't buy into the the myths that uh, everybody is guilty. For instance, on death row, our prison system is very messed up, and you know for the very first time, relatively recently in the big scheme of things people are starting to see, well, this is not right. Like, I'm not buying the narrative that everybody who's on death row is necessarily guilty. But we're certainly perpetuating the scapegoat phenomenon now. I mean, certainly through social media. I don't know. I'm not on Facebook so much, but but on Twitter, everywhere else, it feels like it's being perpetuated through all of this canceling that we're doing. You know, it's interesting, you know, Republicans, they kind of can't get canceled, you know, because they're not in competition. They're not in that that virtue, virtue mimetic war that we on the left are in. The only people who get canceled are those of us who are, who are competing for virtue, who want to be seen as, as somehow uh, socially good or coherent. You know, the, the lefties who are trying to do good, who then get discovered that, you know, that, that they did something bad in the past, you know, then they get canceled. And then that maybe that's relieving the tension in the social justice warrior crowd. You know, we're all tense about when are we going to be canceled? Oh, there's one. Oh, good. Get him. Oh, good. Get that. You know, and, and it feels like that's accelerating, you know, and that's, that's, that's dangerous. It's accelerating on the other side too. I guess, you know, the right looks at the left as, you know, something to be scapegoated that, oh, they're all doing blood libel or they're all pederasts. So they're all, you know, part of the deep state. So scapegoating them that way. It feels to me like scapegoat culture is not going anywhere, that it's actually accelerating. It, it does feel like it's accelerating again. And, you know, we need uh, one scapegoat after another because, as Gerard would put it, the scapegoat mechanism doesn't really work anymore. It's kind of like a battery that that's like ran out of its life. And that's why, you know, somebody gets cold canceled one day and like the next day on Twitter, like some other person has been canceled, right? I mean, like we, we need it. We need a new scapegoat every five minutes. Like the catharsis that we get from one, it doesn't work. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't feed it. It doesn't satisfy the deep desire. So we either have to 
go full Roman and start actually crucifying people, you know, so that so the scapegoat gets some some teeth, or 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 are we just addicted to scapegoat? You know, is it something that just doesn't feed what we're looking for? Right, and I think you're right. You know, the the, the left scapegoats the people on the left, uh, and, and the funny thing about the right is that they are play. I mean, ironically, the role of of the victim in the sense that oh, the media is against us, right? Because nobody has, in a sense, a, a nobody is untouchable in our society like like a victim is. Being a victim, people afford a victim certain rights and powers. And it's, it's almost funny. I mean, like the right is, is using that uh, sort of sense that we have. Of, they're, they're basically playing the victim. Right? I mean, that's where the phrase comes from. Um, but I think that's all related to this tacit understanding of the way that the scapegoat mechanism works. And ironically, there's almost like a, uh, a mimetic rivalry for who's the bigger victim. The, the part of this that leaves me feeling sad, you know, is is that it makes me feel like human beings are these utterly passive creatures that were just iron filings being attracted to various mimetic poles, but that we never come into full consciousness of that, that we never experience true autonomy or choice or anything, that we're just in this swirl of mimesis in some house of mirrors of people imitating others who are themselves imitating others. Well, it's true that there there are these strong mimetic impulses that often tends to tend towards rivalry and conflict and make us miserable. But I do believe, certainly. I mean, you've you've read Wanting, and you know, there's there's a path forward. I do believe there's a path out of this, and Gerard did himself. Uh, that involves renunciation for sure. I mean, it, it involves self awareness. It involves looking in the mirror and coming to grips with our own uh, mimetic tendencies, our own uh, propensity to scapegoat others. That's a really uncomfortable and hard thing to do, and not many people want to do it. I don't think technology will ever solve this problem. I don't think some kind of uh, new form of government will solve it from the top down. I don't think that there's any replacement from people looking into themselves um, and asking those hard questions. And also, you know, we, we can do something with positive transcendence. I mean, the, why I love your work so much, Douglas, is that you know we're looking for human bonds and and real relationships with other people that are not based on utility. That we can just be together and have a conversation. And we're not looking to get anything out of it. And for me, that that human connection is based on transcendence. Like I, like love is based on transcendence. Like my wanting to connect with another human being and transcend my own ego and my own little world and my own concerns and to connect with them, that is a form of transcendence. I mean, that's the best kind of transcendence. Well, I think I think you could look at mimesis differently then, that, you know, the reason why you want the hat is because Johnny's wearing the hat, but maybe not because you want to be like Johnny, but because you want to connect with 
with Johnny. So it's, it's scary to just connect with Johnny directly. So you connect with Johnny's hat and wear Johnny's hat to be like Johnny and all that. But there's this much simpler path if we weren't so afraid of each other, which is just stop looking at Johnny's hat and look in Johnny's eyes, you know, <laughs> to, to the actual person. And, that, and that's good. And that's more fun than trying to make your lawn look like Johnny's or your career look like Johnny's or your art look like Johnny's. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, I, you know, you walk down the street and it's hard to make on, eye contact with anybody. Everybody's got their heads buried in their devices. I mean, if you, I, I would encourage any listeners like go, uh, you know, it's not a game, but g- keep track someday. I mean, take, take a 15 minute walk. And if you live in a big city like New York, I mean, keep track of how many people make eye contact with you. What's the percentage? I bet it's less than 10%, way less than 10%. Oh, totally. I tell people to do that on, on the show. I said we should pretend like we're in a secret club and the people that you actually make eye contact with, they're in the club too. It's like you're in this world of of the body snatchers and everybody's been snatched by their devices. And then you say, oh, it does feel there's like an that. unclaimed soul walking the streets of New York City. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it, it makes this uncomfortable. We're so used to this digital world that, that we're in. We're like enmeshed in this digital world, um, to use a, a Heidegger phrase, totally enmeshed, that it can be uncomfortable to have real human contact. It can make us really uncomfortable. Um, I, uh, I'm i a huge foodie. I think Jeff Cordinier actually is, is the one who originally connected us from Esquire. Mm, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I love to hold dinners and, you know, really encourage people. I don't force them really to not have their devices on the table or anywhere on their bodies, right? Um, I almost just want to have a basket, you know, like leave them in the basket at the door or something. But I mean, I, I have experienced uh, what I would say are, are really transcendent experiences uh, over meals. I mean, food is, a, is a, you know, the classic form of, of communion, breaking bread with people and having conversations. And if you've ever had that experience with another human being that you don't know very well, you sort of cross, cross this... Uh, threshold with them. And while you're crossing that threshold, uh, it, you can get a little uncomfortable, like, ah, a little too intimate. Is this weird? And you just have to keep going. And you kind of establish what, you know, what Buber would call that I-thou kind of relationship, entering into this, this relationship where you really see them as a person who's just like you, who has their own fears and concerns, uh, and you can empathize with them. Uh, and that is a truly a transcendent experience. And do you think we still have a chance? I mean, I'm I'm living on the chance, on the chance of maybe collectively, partially, if not if not fully transcending, at least collectively, partially transcending this mimetic urge before we, you know, literally burn our planet up on the energy of desire. Yeah, I mean. I wouldn't have written a damn book if I didn't think we had a chance. I wouldn't have wasted so much, so much time doing it. Right. So I am optimistic that that we can do it if we start having these conversations. If we start modeling healthy dialogue and relationships with one another, uh, and I think we we lack like really, really good models for doing that in our leadership. I mean, it's a little ironic though, because what you're saying is, well, we're going to model non-mimetic behavior so that people can then imitate it. <laughs> Do you know what yeah, I mean? Well, there, there is a little bit of that. I mean, I, w- I would say that, you know, Jesus, Gandhi, the Buddha, they were very positive mimetic models. 
right? That really, you know, had a ripple effect for, for thousands of years. And, right. you know, we don't, I, I mean, I can't think of anybody like that in the culture right now. And I, I sort of joke with my friends sometimes. I'm like, you know, maybe the only hope that we'll have, at least as a country in the U.S., is for some, like, kind of typical politician to to get elected president and have some kind of, like, conversion experience when, when he or she does. Because the, the things that uh, allowed them to get elected in the first place. Oh, the worst. Right. What, like, are, are, are exactly, right? So, like, like the kind of person that we need would never be the kind of person that would actually be able to get elected or who would ever even want to go through that process, right? Yeah, well, it's, it, it's a difficult concept. I, I remember thinking about it first in my in my early rave days. You know, we just did an episode with some of my my early rave friends in the, in the early 90s. And part of the idea was we were going to move beyond rock and roll culture because rock and roll culture, it happened on a stage, a bunch of long-haired guys doing masturbatory guitar solos that, and everyone wanted to be like them, and we all bought little guitars and tried to practice the solos in the opening of Stairway to Heaven, or the Yes is Roundabout, and you'd worship this performer on the stage. That that rave, uh, at least in the early days, you know, before Calvin Harris was headlining a club in Vegas, that you didn't even see the DJ. It was kind of an anonymous thing, and that was very intentional. The performer was taken off the stage and put somewhere you didn't see and that forced all the dancers in the club we all looked at each other and if you did mimesis it was just like hand-to-hand combat you know it was it was person to person you're just imitating somebody else on the dance floor in a kind of ritualistic way and the way you're moving your hips but but it was all being part of this thing together you'd come into the club as your weird crazy ass self you know Everybody, old, young, straight, gay, queer, whatever you were, just to be part of this big thing. And it seemed it was a way to move past, you know, the the 20th century uh, leadership phenomenon. I mean, for however great, you know, Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Mandela, they, they were, they're also kind of 20th century eyes on the prize, you know, uh, imitate me, follow me up the hill. And we're moving into something else, a more a more fractal, grassroots, local community form of politics and expression and liberation. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge believer in, in things happening locally uh, and, and local activism and, and local involvement in politics. I mean, it's so important. I mean, it's hard to create these kinds of experiences at scale. That's the issue. Like, you know, we've been to great parties before and, you know, I experienced sort of that, that community and that sense. Uh, but how do, you, how do you do that at scale? How do you do that in a country with 330 million people and make them feel solidarity? Yeah, I wonder if, if we continue doing mimesis, but we do it in a different way. You know, we don't do it in order to become the, the great individual. You know, the society of the individual was born, you know, back in the in the in the Renaissance, you know, in the the Enlightenment and and this notion that you were self a self and you were self fashioning. Because maybe, you know, we move beyond that. Instead of imitating individual heroes, we move 
into more kind of, I don't know, temporary autonomous zones of mimesis. So here I am, there you are, let's mirror each other on this dance floor of life in one way or another, then I'm going to go mirror this person and mirror that person, and it becomes a more sort of egalitarian, communal, collective form of mimesis as, as play. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I certainly think it's going to happen from the from the ground up, right at the at the local level. I didn't mean to imply like there's going to be some savior or some hero. Right. It would help. It'd be nice if we had a leader who who modeled healthy behavior. But I do think it's going to come from from the ground up. You know, it's funny. You look at people are trying to achieve. I think that the kind of experience we're talking about with with you know Burning Man and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I've never been to it, but what's funny about it is that there is a, a man who's burned, um, and it kind of has a lot of things with this with the scapegoat mechanism. Going going on in ritual form right. um, and some people have thrown them into the burning themselves into the burning man before so there's some weird ritualistic scapegoat mechanism-y type stuff going on there um, I've never been to it you know and I've, I've had some fascinating conversations with some people you know uh, what's the role of like psychedelics um, you know in achieving some kind of a shift um, you know I've only recently become more interested in them because I have a father with Alzheimer's disease and I'm I'm now thinking about you know how they, they may be able to help him so there, there's I I think it's got to happen. Transformation has got to start small. I I do believe it's going to start small. Um, And mimesis can work in positive ways. I don't know if you've ever seen that YouTube video of the dude who starts dancing by himself uh, at some kind of a rave or party, and he's just dancing crazy for a couple of minutes, and then one person joins him, and then another person, and before you know it, like everybody's having a good time. Um, That mimesis can be positive as well. And it can start, so, you know, have hope that if you begin um, being the change you wish to see in the world, that that's also mimetic. It's not just bad things that are mimetic. Um, real relationships are mimetic. I mean, I've met uh, families and friends who I've just wanted to emulate because they seem like incredibly loving, patient, kind people, and they're mimetic in the best kind of way. Yes, and and it's a beginning. Oh, he looks like he's having fun. What's he doing? It's it's back to the old uh, Timothy Leary thing about about drugs. He said, before you take a drug, look into the eyes of somebody who's on that drug and decide if that's someplace you want to be. He looks like he's having fun and dancing that way. I'm going to try singing and dancing that way and see where I want to take it. So it, it, it's not that mimesis is the end of the game. Mimesis is an opening to try on someone else's experience and then see how to move on from there. Yeah. I mean, we'd certainly never imitate anybody that we think is, you know, miserable. And we only imitate, I mean, we, we only imitate people that we think are a little happier than we are, or like seem to be having a better time at the party than we right. are. I mean, truly nobody selects a model to imitate sub unconsciously or consciously, unless they believe at some level that that person is being human, is maybe a little more human or expressing their humanity a little bit better because we all, we all long to just be the most human, right? And to be able to just be a fully integrated person. So you know, that's why we choose our models. And that's why some people are so attractive to us. I, I truly believe that um, when it's happening in the positive sense. Well, you do that in the positive sense for me, Luke. I, I mean that. I mean, in so many ways, you've looked into some of the, the darkest 
caves of human consciousness and longing and wanting, not just want, but want, W-O-N-T, the real want that we have. And you've come through what, what Robert Anton Wilson would call the chapel perilous, only without agnosticism or cynicism, but with a kind of a, of a hope and faith in the capacity of humankind to lift ourselves out of this morass. And really, there's no more team human message or purpose than that. Well, thanks so much, Douglas. I, I feel the same way, and I hope you consider me part of the team. And, you know, our conversations that we've been able to have so far have tr- been for me uh, some, of the, some of the most satisfying that I've had in, in months, um, just being able to try to get at a truth together. Uh, we have a lot of differences, and it's, it's a beautiful thing to just be able to have a conversation shoulder to shoulder um, where we're just kind of staring at, at the same you know, future that I think we both want, right? All right, beautiful. Thanks for being on Team Human. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Douglas. Appreciate it. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Luke Burgess, the author of Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. You can find out more about Luke at lukeburgess.com, or you can find out more about him and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become part of the point. Oh, 3% of regular listeners who now support this show. Be part of the few, the proud, the team of humans. Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 